Okay, thanks for joining us for this edition this week of I Worked at the Fabulous Palm Springs Follies. This week, I want to talk about someone who I had the opportunity and the pleasure to work with for many of my years at the Follies and in, continued after I left the Follies as well. And that is the great musical conductor, Johnny Harris. Johnny and I became friends over the course of our years working together at the Follies. And he was someone that I admired, that I looked up to, and that I found a brother and a kinship in. Because even though we were very apart in age by, I believe, about 30 years, roughly, he older than I, we just had this bond over music, not just the Follies music, but over all of music and everything it encompassed and happened throughout the history because, you know, he lived a lot of that early rock and roll type stuff that was happening. Uh, he was a part of that. So that was exciting to me that he was there in the 60s when things really blew up. And then also in the 70s, it was just a fabulous friendship that I'm so grateful that I had over the years. Sadly, Johnny's not with us any longer. It was just over a year ago in March of 2020 that he passed away after quite a long bout with cancer. He was born November 9th, 1932 in Edinburgh, Scotland. He wasn't with the Beatles. Or he wasn't with the Stones, that sort of thing. But he was quite the man about town musically there in, in Britain in the early days. He was actually part of the first color program or show that was in color, not black and white, on BBC One. It was a concert by Petula Clark with the Johnny Harris Orchestra live from the Royal Albert Hall there in London. That was in 1969. He arranged, conducted, produced many tracks for Shirley Bassey on a lot of her songs. Johnny worked with Tom Jones, which he had some really interesting stories from his time with Tom. Engelbert Humperdinck. And most famously for me, he turned down Elvis. He turned down the chance to be Elvis's musical conductor. When I learned of this, I'm a huge Elvis fan. And when Johnny told me that very early in our working relationship, from then on, nearly every time I called him up until these last years, I would always call him into just this phony Elvis accent and, and tell him, hey, remember, the king is calling. I need Johnny, you know. And whether he really got a kick out of it or not, I don't know. But he always cracked a, a laugh out of it and had a good good laugh with it. That was always a fun thing for me. He was just a joy to work with. And his studio originally there in Palm Springs, and I think for the remainder of the time he stayed in Palm Springs, he eventually moved to L.A. in his later years, though was in his home. And his garage, he had turned into the recording studio area. And then he had a separate little room built off where the control room was at. And when I first started working with Johnny, he had this really old mixing console, not old in the sense that it was a terrible mixing console. It was just, it was an artifact. It was um, a piece of audio history is what it was. And it was pretty cool to work with. Uh, so my first year there, 94 to 95, I didn't work very closely with John because I wasn't quite ingrained in that yet. 
The next year, when we came back, I worked a little bit with him in the original recording sessions. And <clears throat> that was mostly there at the theater. My third year there, by the time I became completely in charge of the audio department, was when I, audio department was when I got to go to his home and, and spend a lot of time with him there, just he and I. And that was a blast. But it was always a blast working with John because he just had, he had great stories. He had a great rapport with the, the dancers, the singers. We also had Dick Williams, who was Andy Williams' brother. Dick owned a company in L.A. that provided singers for jingles and backup singers and recordings and things like that. So the L.A. Singers is what they were called. And they were there every year for the recording session. They did a lot of the chorus work for us, a lot of that backup work. And then they would also help the Follies singers uh, with their recordings and just whatever the arrangements were on the songs. So I got a chance to work with Dick Williams as well. So that was another one of these great, you know, legends of our business, of the entertainment world. It was just so cool. It was just the best time. Usually the first month or so that we were back in the year, you know, so what was that, August or September when we would come back before the show would open and we'd be in our pre-production and rehearsals and all this stuff. You know, spending those days over at John's house, he and I, and then the singers would come over and then our Folly singers would come over and we were recording them and we were mixing them. It was just a magical, magical time. It was so cool. And to hear Johnny's stories of his time working with people, you know, Johnny had his own hits as well. He didn't just do hits for other people. He had his own hits and one of his most amazing records. And you can get this today. You can buy it on Amazon and on iTunes. And I have a, a copy on DAT, which is digital audio tape. We used to use these little bitty tapes. It was before we had CDs really in big use. We used these DAT tapes because they could hold high quality audio for us. And they were great for archival purposes as well, because, you know, even though it was tape, it didn't necessarily stretch. It didn't, you know, it, uh, it was a bit of a ones and zeros. And so it was great. And I have a dat copy of this album. It's called movements also had another amazing album called footprints on the moon. These were all in 69 and 70 that <clears throat> he did some amazing work on with, full orchestras where he was doing famous pop songs at the time, like light my fire. Uh, uh, he worked with, um, some of the guys from yes, John Anderson. And, uh, I forget who else from the, from yes, he worked with. It was, it was most of the band. I actually believe, uh, played on these records. Uh, another record he had was all to bring you morning. And he did a, a whole bunch of work with Paul Anka. I think he co-wrote She's Having My Baby as well with Paul Anka. And I had the chance to meet Paul Anka about hmm, seven years ago now when I worked for another artist. And Paul was at a dinner that we were all having together. And I went over to him and introduced myself and told him who I'd worked with Johnny before. And Paul was over the moon because he hadn't talked to Johnny. And he said probably 20 or more years. And I gave him Johnny's number. I have no idea if they connected or not. I remember calling Johnny the next day and telling him and he was shocked. Paul actually asked for his number. So I don't know if there's something had gone on between those two guys or what. 
Well, you know, John came to the Follies in 1990, actually, and he was there all the way through the end run, providing the music. He worked a lot of hours. And in those early days, he had to do the music so much by hand. Even though it was a computerized system, for instance, if he had to play the drums on a song, or if he needed drums on a song, he actually had to play the drums on a keyboard. Now think about that for a moment. Not drumming, but a keyboard, a piano-type keyboard. He would play the drums. Every key was a different drum or cymbal. And it was incredible to watch him do it. It was amazing. He was a master at horn sections. And it's also the same way. So if he had to do, you know, if a song called for horns, he had to play all the horn sections. He had to play all the string sections. Everything. It was incredible. Those early days of how he had to do things. And it was quite a ways into the run of the Follies. I mean, we're talking up until season 10 or so that he still did things like that before the technology kind of all of a sudden flipped on its ear and became uh, easier to purchase, became cost effective. Also, the technology improved that someone with a home studio like we had set up there for John could use that that gear and make it work. It was just always a, a, a blast to go to John's place and to sit. And his wife, Laura, made the most amazing egg salad sandwiches. I didn't know I liked egg salad sandwiches. Again, I was this bumpkin. I'm sure we have egg salad sandwiches back in Missouri, but I was this bumpkin. And so Laura made these wonderful egg salad sandwiches. And I always looked forward to going there and having an egg salad sandwich. I was always hoping that I got to go there at lunchtime. And at the time, John had a, a young child, Emerson, and I got to watch Emerson grow up until he was about, you know, eight or 10 years old. And that was just fabulous. It was, it was great. Johnny adored his children, all of, all of his children. His daughter, Julie, wrote a book called Johnny Harris, The Man Who Turned Down Elvis Twice. And she wrote that to celebrate his 80th birthday, was in, which was in November of 2012. I can remember... Johnny's 70th birthday in 2002 was quite the, the soiree, the party. It was a lot of fun. Johnny also worked with another one of my favorite people. Growing up in the 70s, we had Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. Well, he did a lot of the music for the Wonder Woman television show. And he did, Linda was a big star here in Las Vegas. And he did a ton of work with Linda here in Las Vegas as well. And then he continued even to work with Engelbert up through these later years as well. He was doing a lot of things with him there. And towards the end of his time, while Johnny was in L.A., he started working with uh, Robbie Krieger of The Doors. Robbie has a studio in L.A. Amazing, the reach that Johnny had that we had the pleasure of having work with us at this little jewel box show in the desert. In the middle, you know, at one time it was kind of like being in the middle of nowhere. Make no mistake, though, we might have been small. We might have been in the middle of nowhere, but we were one of the just most successful. It was, it's unheard of in any time to always keep selling out shows and having 
crowds come like we had for the entire run of the Follies, really. Johnny was one of those guys who could get the best out of an artist. I saw it so many times with our cast. There were times that we had folks that would sing because it would be a comedy bit. And so these folks that had to sing, they weren't singers, but they were thrust into the spotlight to sing because it was going to be a comedy bit. And the way Johnny would work with that cast member to bring out the best performance in them, to help them feel confident, to instruct them and guide them, just beautiful part of John and who he was. Well, I continued to work with John a little bit after I left the Follies. I would consult with him every now and then on things that he needed. Uh, There was a couple of times he was involved with other projects that he involved me on. And one of the last things that John was working on that I was a part of was a record for the Follies PR team leader, marketing leader, along who is, I, I think, really Mary's right-hand guy, Greg Purdy. Greg was a entertainer, entertainer before he came to the Follies. Did a lot of stuff around Palm Springs in L.A. Uh, before he was at our show doing the behind-the-scenes things. John was working uh, in Robbie Krieger studio with Greg to produce this new record that Greg wanted to have. There are some songs out there, so you can find Greg out there on YouTube and other platforms. I got to collaborate a little bit on that project with John. We forget sometimes when we worked with all these people at the Follies because we saw them on a daily basis and we, we got to be friends with them and we ate dinner with them or we went out and had a drink with them, whatever. You just kind of forget how big of an impact they had outside of just the Follies. They were more than the Follies. And of course, John and all these people were more than the Follies to their families, but they had fans. They had huge followings outside of the Follies. And we just thought of him as our Follies musical conductor, right? We were talking earlier about John and his equipment that he had there at his studio. And about that third year or so, we said, you know, it would really make things easier and more productive for us at the Follies if Johnny's gear and our gear were kind of the same. There were so many days that I would have to run all the way out to Rancho Mirage to John's place to get maybe a two-minute piece of music and run it back in. And then, you know, edits and this and that. Oh, it's got to go back to John again. So, it would really get time consuming and it could also, when we were, would be in a time crunch myself and uh, David Jernberg there, the other guy in the department with me, along with Dan Jardine and, and, and Riff and Johnny, we, we consulted an awful lot. We sat down, we really planned this out and the gear that we had there at the Follies, we then purchased the same type of gear for John Now he had a super modern setup. David and I went in and rewired his studio for him, really streamlined our process. And it was for us in the audio department and the music department, it was a huge breakthrough because what it also meant was it meant that we could, when we had to do those recordings of the tap dancers or the singers, and it had to be, you know, you want, you did those recordings to kind of fluff up everything that was happening live on stage. But when you record those things in a just a, a sterile studio, you have to do some magic and trickery to make it, you know, sound live when it gets there in the Plaza Theater. 
What this allowed us to do then was to start doing those recording sessions in the plaza. And then we started mixing the music in the plaza. We didn't have to run out to John's all the time to do one little bit. We could do it there. Then John could do his musical tweaks to it. Then we could do our audio tweaks to it. And then Riff could come in and add his icing on the cake, which is the way we looked at things, right? You know, John's part of the cake of the music was an ingredient. What we did as the audio team and the mixing was another ingredient. And then Mr. Markowitz would always come in and do something, sprinkle that little bit of magic on the top of it that made us all go, ah, there it is. That's it. And we didn't always agree on how things should sound. And this was another one of those learning experiences that Riff brought to the table for me. Riff's expectation of the music was, you know, these people that are coming to, to see our show are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. When they heard Frank Sinatra sing in 1950, it sounded a certain way. No matter what kind of fancy technology and high fidelity system we've brought to the world now in 1999, we still need it in these patrons' minds to sound like it did in 1950. And you might say, well, why would you want that? Wouldn't you want that clear, super duper high fidelity in your face mix? No, again, that was part of the magic that originally I didn't understand, but that was part of the magic of the follies and part of that dust and that icing on the cake that Riff and others could put on it. It was the way we do things so that when that person is sitting in that seat in the fifth row, that they feel 1950. They feel what it was like when they were 18 years old and had to go to war. They feel what it felt like when, it was, when they were 20 years old and came home when they got married, when they had their first child. And to this day, I use that in no matter where I'm at in my entertainment career and what I'm doing, I always look at who the audience is, not who I am and what I think should be done. What's the audience here? What are they expecting? That is the little bit of magic and little bit of spark that made the follies different from going down the street to some other show. That's what separated it from some phony show in Las Vegas or in Duluth or wherever. It just was the icing on the cake. Well, that's it. Go out, get that book, The Man Who Turned Down Elvis Twice. Learn about your Follies music man. And when I talk to you, we've got more interview. We got interviews coming. I'm waiting on an, I have an interview that's out right now with somebody that they're recording for me that I hope will be our next episode. I know I wanted to try to do things in a certain order here, but life doesn't always go that way. And I, the response to this first episode, to the first episode had been so overwhelming. I wanted to get another episode out. And for me, it was really important to get a friend of mine out. And that was Johnny Harris. I wanted to get my feelings about John out there. When I talk to you, you know, these are things to think about. What's your remembrance of a Johnny Harris? You know, we're going to talk about those things. How did you, did you have any interactions with certain people? There were people I didn't even get to interact with very much. You know, the costume designers I had zero interaction with, but there were people that did that worked. I worked with every day, but that's it for now. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Thank you everyone who's enjoyed the first episode and who's joined, who's enjoyed this episode and has joined us now. I appreciate you. I appreciate that you're listening and that you're also very interested in being on the show. And I cannot wait to talk to all of you at some point about the fabulous 
Palm Springs Follies. <laughs>